0: the best category leading brands have have leadership who are prepared to take creative risks, be that in a new product or how they're positioned or how they talk to the market at the top of the funnel. And you can't measure it. And we don't pretend that we can measure every aspect of that as well. We just point to other brilliant firms who've done the same and and really front up to that question actually by by putting it back on them and saying, you know, have you got the guts to be like these people?
1: My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations: The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors.
0: Fred, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning, Mike. I'm really well. It's a um, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning you obviously for for full disclosure um to your listeners uh, mike uh, helps out Matter of form um as a consultant with us and um you're a bit of a legend in our company you're called, you're <laughs> called you, the Fred. man you're called the man the myth the legend mike lander um we all love you we think you're one of the nicest um professionals in the industry as well as um supremely top of your craft of negotiation, pr- procurement, and matters like that. And so this really is a life ambition to be with you this morning, Mike. I think I've achieved my professional dreams. <laughs>
1: Fred, so for those people that are listening purely on podcasts, I'm now bright red. <laughs> Fred, thank you ever so much. That's really kind. Thank you. I love working with your team. It's amazing. We had an amazing session um, last week where we were doing some negotiation skills kind of just like training and update. Um, <laughs> we did some juggling, didn't we? Which was a lot of did, fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Role play with Mike Landers,
0: good fun. And um, I got into a lot of trouble with our team because they love you so much that um, I slightly took the mic out of your slides asking whether <laughs> your son, Leo, had designed them um, in front of about 60 people. And um, they went for me. And no, no, I was in everyone's bad books after that. I, I thought it was fair, but anyway.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So we are here, in fact, to talk about, uh, obviously, it's the Drums Marketing Negotiations podcast. Um, So we've gone through just a a few high-level themes. Um, But before we start, Fred, what would be great is just talk about kind of like your background, uh, your current role, and something in life that you're just really proud of, personal or work. Yeah, sure. So... um... So the story of how I got to where I
0: am at Form. so um I grew up on a farm in uh, near Northampton sort of um, wow. Milton Keynes area um so that was about I did uh, languages at university uh, and then obviously, uh, qualified after that as a linguist, um, as an accountant at Deloitte. Um, so I did three years doing that. Went, then went into investment management in the city. So I used to run um, an institutional equity fund with a company called Newton Investment Management wow. all the way through the credit crisis. So I ran the Newton European Higher Income Fund um, as equities and Europe was imploding. I think it's, it, you know, it's, what was that? That was 12, 14 years ago. Yeah. And um uh, it's it's easy to forget that actually it didn't look like the euro as a currency would survive um, that particular patch. So what an interesting time to be investing in Greece, Italy, Portugal, um, uh, when all, all that was <laughs> going on. Anyway, um, in 2010, I met uh, my business partner and the founder of Matroform, Anand Sharma. And together for the, last, um, for the last 10 years, we've been building up Matroform. Um, we are a design and brand consultancy for luxury and premium brands, but our work is um, spread all across the world, which I think is quite an interesting dynamic when talking about procurement and negotiation. Um, and we get to look after some of the world's category leading brands from a brand and digital perspective, be that um, Belmond in hotels, um, be that um, the rug company or Tangle Teaser in e-commerce, be that some incredibly interesting real estate projects spanning from the Middle East to, um, to other geographies. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I, I now tend to look after mainly the, um, the commercial bit of the business, although I still have a, a bit of an eye over um, all matters relating to kind of operations or, or finance or procurement as well. And something about yourself that people wouldn't know necessarily. Yes, um, what's something about myself that people wouldn't know? One our office is in um Shoreditch High Street. We've always been in this area for the last twelve years, um which is um it's a wonderful part of London. It's obviously mm. a part of London that's become gentrified. But Hackney is a borough, as we all know, is um it's a really wonderful, vibrant, diverse place. And so for about um this started actually before I joined Matterform. reform. Um I was a governor of a primary school called St. John the Baptist. In mm-hmm. in um in Hackney, which for me, um, I just mentioned that because I think it's really important when we're working, when we're in, we're in our bubble, and you know we're very lucky we get to travel the world to do our job to um to be a little bit connected to the community, but also to education. It's something I'm interested in, and that experience has um really opened up to me potentially some things I'd like to do later on in life, but also just just grounded me a little bit in all the wonderful stuff that happens. Um, in the community, around and about, the passionate people in the public sector. Um, And um, I think just also really important, I think, to be appreciative of what an amazing country really we live in and with all these strikes going on um and you know a little bit of sort of a certain amount of strife in sort of geopolitics and in the national one and a lot of people moaning about how things are so bad i'm not saying things are great or things aren't tough for people but we're very lucky to live in this country i think and um and you can see that in our schooling and our hospitals despite the challenges you know we, we do have these amazing people doing these amazing things
1: absolutely agree definitely um so a question, Fred. So yes. we had a chat before. Um, obviously, as you say, you're, you work with timeless luxury brands. Yeah. Are there any particular nuances when you're negotiating commercial deals with brands in that sector? Is anything like different, or is it just well, it's just any old negotiation aspect? It's quite different.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, it's very very nuanced. I think it is a bit different. I think when you get down the funnel into a negotiation or or into a procurement, be that um, kind of a really big company procurement or a smaller, more informal one. Um, It's largely speaking the same. I think the same sort of classic strategies and tactics apply. Human nature is the same. There's two sides who are wanting to arrive at a mutually beneficial uh, agreement that gives both value, um, et cetera, et cetera. That said, I think in the the kind of high-end premium or luxury segments, you get a lot more informal procurement Um, than than you would in sort of inverted commas mainstream contracts. And by informal procurement, what I mean is basically when you're not in a really kind of corporate RFP process with a department or at least a job role that is responsible for doing that. Um, And essentially the reason for that is because there's a lot of these brands that they actually have very small, they might be very well-known brands and they might have reasonable budgets, but they have very, very small management teams. Um, And so, for example, you might find that uh, procurement for a big um, e-commerce or digital build or branding one is is sort of subcontracted to an extent to uh, a relatively junior person in marketing. Um, you you might find you see this a lot that there's some very very um, sort of powerful or influential people who buy these brands um, and they're really in control of all of this. So it might be procured by the person at the top, but again, informally. And what that means is that um, I always think when you're in procurement, what The sort of the golden aim is essentially is that you want to be in a position whereby there's a match in terms of you you do something so well and you can prove you do it so well that that you're really to quote Blair Nance and maybe we'll talk about him later you're just steering them towards the right decision you know you know you're good you you absolutely just know it we've all been there when you're building a business when you're it's a bit sort of hit hope pray and spray but you're just steering them towards. The right decision. You want to be in a situation whereby you know that their, their criteria for assessing you to, to get through to win the contract um, is such that they recognize relatively objective qualities you, you know, that you can prove. And therefore, you'll probably win when you're into that final, it's been qualified and you're in the sales pipeline late stage and you're pitching. You're probably going to win one in two, worst case, one in three, all of those. And absolutely fine. You can't win them all. That's the golden name. The problem about informal procurement is that other factors come into play. So we talked about it. If there's someone relatively inexperienced procuring quite an important project, they might not understand or have the sort of background in, in doing this, they might judge you on subjective or just the wrong criteria they might know, not know what they're looking for so we get always a little bit worried or cautious when that comes in because you do all the work you've actually put forward a brilliant proposal you, you know you're going to write for them and it would take a really stunning proposal to to beat to be ours and yet it went on something you were completely not expecting or maybe they didn't tell you anything so that that's a problem when it's procured like that as you get up the chain and you get the scenario of you know quite a kind of powerful experienced or successful entrepreneur, you then get a whole host of other more subjective criteria. They can be very, very kind of chemistry driven, you know, um, fame and fortune and all of that. And it might, might be going on sort of softer criteria. Um, They can often be, there's often really interesting dynamic. They might be, um, I see this a lot, you know, like someone who's from a country like you name it in Asia or, or America, and they've been, they've built a brilliant, ball bearing business or something you know incredible entrepreneurs or businessmen and then they buy um, you know you see this a lot with football clubs but they might buy a fashion brand or they might buy a hotel Um, and the thing is is that as good a businessman as they are you know they're not experts in that field yet and so again their criteria for for procurement or selecting you as a partner might just be way off. And so it's kind of informal. It might be gut. It might be based on, on other things that aren't the sort of objective criteria we want to be judged on, you know, for our expertise and brand and digital for that kind of brand. So so essentially, the good side is this informal procurement aspect of the market is that to our market, which happens a lot, is that you can get quite quickly through to a decision and you can bypass the kind of corporate bureaucracy um however we cannot we often get in a situation where we've just smashed it and we think we've smashed it and then um <laughs> then they come back and, and it we haven't won it and we're like, well, I mean, how, why? Um and it's difficult yeah. to, to understand. So it's just like with everything, it's not like a black or white, it's just a bit a bit of an interesting dynamic
1: to it. And how do you deal with that in the uh, kind of the sales cycle rather than the negotiation cycle? What given that you've learned that over many, many years, how does that adapt the way that you behave? in that sales process?
0: Well, I mean, the only way I can answer that really is that we've developed our own um, qualification methodology. And do you know what? It's going to be exactly the same as everyone else's. Um, What do we look at? We look at, uh, we call it, um, because they all have these bizarre acronyms, you know, like Scotsman or this or the other. um, We've just invented our own stupid acronym called Humour, and that's four P's. So we we try and sort of like like let the P roll a bit and go humour, and it's okay. um, <laughs> it's people obviously. So we we start with people. Um, uh, we're just very very careful to check that we've got the right people who are going to be pleasant to work with. But it's even more important in our industry. Um, and then project type is it um, something you've been very heavily involved with us, Mike? You know, we only have four project types, and we won't do anything else these days so that's super important proposition you know are they essentially luxury premium brands and that we're set up with our ip and our way of operating and our design um a design to help those brands there's no point we're just not going to be able to help someone who's not that um and then then we get on to um pitch rivalry obviously you know we're very very upfront um about asking um who else is is pitching and also um, so, how many people are pitching? But we we really try and find out who it is, because you can tell a lot in our game by there's. We know there's a certain type of business that's procured by a certain type of potential client, and if you find out someone else is in the pitch process, you're probably like, "All oh, that makes sense." Or it can be really positive, or or because they've chosen that lot, they didn't really. It might be a warning sign is that they haven't really done their homework. So this could be a bit random. So so that there's that. Uh then we do urgency, money. Obviously, we ask for budgets, but the most important is authority. It's that issue of does this person we speak to actually have authority? This is the the point around it sort of subcontracted to someone relatively junior. You go, they they've got the RFP, they've probably even done a good job, but you find out that the owner back in New York has got their preferred business they've worked with for 30 years, but they just haven't told this person. And so authority is the the way that we we're really people and authority of that Puma sort of methodology is what we look at um most hard but but like i say just to come back to the to the aim of what we're trying to do we're just trying to find the match for us whereby we're shepherding them to us because we know we're going to absolutely smash it and be the, a great partner to them so um we're just trying to get a sense of that ultimate truth and then ideally have because of marketing uh which we're getting to we're not quite there yet but you know the aim is if we can have two times as much demand at any one time as our capacity, we're going to be sifting through those opportunities really carefully so that we kind of know we're going to win it or 50% chance of winning it. And we can sort of back it up. You, you, you make the errors when you're scrabbling to fill that that gap or you need the money, and then you're making kind of classic errors that we all know about.
1: So, Fred, so as everyone knows that's listening, this is not a sales podcast. This is the negotiation podcast. People are saying, yeah. why are they talking about qualification criteria? So for me, this becomes really important is that the way the sales cycle's set up has a massive bearing on the way the negotiations run. Yeah. Because as a buyer, when I was in my buyer role, I was looking for niche suppliers. Very rare was I looking for a full service generic supplier. Mm. Occasionally, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I'd do that. But normally it's I'm looking for a niche expert supplier. So very narrow, but very, very deep. And what you've just described there is if you're trying, if you're starting to work with a client whereby you've got the wrong level of authority, um, you're talking to the wrong kinds of people. They're yeah. interested, but you know it's more of a. It might be a um, a large website build, but doesn't have a huge emphasis on the brand and the kind of consumer interaction for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, if you start going down that road, you qualify it in. Because maybe the pipeline's a bit thin. And then you get down to being shortlisted. You're one of two or three, because clearly I'm not going to have one. I'm going to have two Mm. or three. The negotiation becomes a commoditized negotiation. You give me all the power, I treat you like a commodity. It's a race to the bottom. Yes. The relationship's not important because on the people and the authority side, I'm just, you know, I might be a middle level person as a buyer. Um, I've just been told to get this deal done, it's worth 200K. It's not a five million deal, and so it ends up that I end up trying to speed the transaction through, treat you much more like a kind of buyer supplier relationship, focus less on the uh, relationship side, and just focus on the content of the the deal. And it's this kind of race to the bottom. Does that kind of resonate at all? It completely resonates because look, if I, I you know, of course,
0: you know, a lot of what you talk about is is um, when you're in that procurement process and you're dealing with a procurement team or procurement person a procurement role there's lots of tactics and strategies around anchoring and um you know negotiation and all of that and they're super super important but i actually think they're less important than qualifying in your marketing and your sales because yes. procurement's incredibly easy when they want you it's incredibly difficult when you're one of many or you haven't displayed a specialism or expertise that makes you stand out above the others. So um, it's a bit cart before horse, I think. So when we're talking, when we are talking about procurement and negotiation, I I will naturally talk about marketing sales and qualification first before getting into um, negotiation tactics, not to discount how important they are, of course.
1: Of course. Now, obviously, we're both big fans of Blair Enns uh, and his work. uh, And for anyone listening, if you've not listened to uh, Blair's 20% podcast on procurement, uh, you should listen to it. So shout out for Blair, go and listen to his 20% um procurement podcast. But and also, obviously not not to forget um his other
0: podcast with um David Baker, David C. Baker. Ah, two Bobs. Two Bobs. Um of which I'm such a fan. I took myself off to Atlanta in in the autumn um to David Baker's conference. Blair couldn't make it, but um, oh, wow. his um his sort of the, um lady runs a business was there and yeah. it's great. So yeah, I'm a I'm a big disciple of um some of the truisms in in his approach to sales, marketing, negotiation procurement.
1: So on that point about the kind of win without pitching, yeah. What, but what you've just described is actually in your market, in your sector, with your niche. Sometimes having a having a strict procurement process that's been rigorously rigorously run by a procurement person can be to your advantage. Is that what you're saying? Well,
0: yeah. So th- this is this is where I might pick up on something. Um, and goes slightly counter to Blair End. So he, so he's written this book called um, "Win Without Pitching," but actually cleverly, he calls it a manifesto. And I believe what what he's doing is he's really painting a very simple kind of North Star over over the ideal kind of procurement journey or sales journey. Um but look the, the the ultimate message is if you do the right things before, you shouldn't ever really get into procurement, you shouldn't ever need well, you certainly should never need to pitch. it might you might be procured, but you should certainly never need to pitch um and you probably want to avoid some really big bureaucratic corporate um procurement process. The oddity about the market we operate in is because it can be quite, as I say, informal or kind of kind of it's you know we we deal with very brand related high touch, products and services so there is frankly like naturally a lot of um a lot of instinct a lot of gut a lot of belief a lot of strong characters so so it, it can be a bit um subjective not objective how things happen but we basically love a big bureaucratic procurement not to say I don't love winning without pitching and we we try all that but usually for us because we've qualified in an opportunity it does actually give us our best chance of showing, Showing off our best version of ourselves, and we can be reasonably trusting that we'd be marked on the criteria we expect to be marked in. So, it's the one thing where he probably, on the whole, in his manifesto, would say sort of avoid that situation. Um, we're very attracted to it, and it, and because it's, um, you know, it's probably a big corporate who does it. It can be some of our most long-term and um, uh, highest-value engagements. So, so whenever we get like a proper rfp which would just be normal in some some sort of sectors or industries um we we get excited not the other way around so it's a bit counterintuitive that perhaps to some of uh, blair's teachings
1: brilliant i might ask blair to respond to that on a different podcast <laughs> um so um so you work at the intersection between design technology and user experience um yeah can you talk about some of the kind of commercial challenges that, that brings when you're negotiating particularly this kind of service level agreements slas and KPIs, key performance indicators. Yeah, you know, what happens uh, in that kind of scenario when I'm trying to basically uh, not beat you up, but try and focus you on how am I going to measure success in terms of activities, outputs, and outcomes? Yeah, and this is a, this is a great question because
0: this is uh, it's it's a it's a real thing. It's not a problem. It's it's it, but it's just yep. a real thing that we deal with. So we're we're set up our kind of. USP in the way we're set up um, is that we have basically one half of the business who are very uh, right brain, you know, the sort of creative brand, exquisite creatives, you know, brilliant strategists, big thinkers, all of that. Then the other side, which is the more left brain thing, analysis, data, logic, conversion. You know, we call this brand versus conversion. So we we set up our business exactly half-half to have this tension pulling against each other because... Um, in a category leading brand or a luxury brand, this is how the client this is attention the client always has, we find. And this is why we're so brilliantly set up to solve their problems, because you've got a brand team. Let's take a um let's take a great hotel chain or or series of hotel collection. Um, you've got a brand team who who know that it's all about guest experience, like really differentiated positioning, you know, the 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 staff living and breathing that, um, taking some risks, be that with the um, choice of food and beverage, be that with the interiors, be that with this, that, or the other. You've then got a, a kind of a revenue team and a digital team who are about e-commerce conversion, you know, optimization. So it's a very sort of top of funnel, bottom of funnel balance that, um, actually, I've, I heard a podcast with, um, what's that, uh, Rory Sutherland um, was talking about this the other day. He's brilliant on on that sort of thing. So look, it's really easy when we're sort of putting KPIs and SLAs together. If you're talking about kind of website uptime, conversion, dwell time, all those things, it's really easy to find metrics against that. It's also quite easy to, for people to fudge them. Um, so you know, you want to be you want to have integrity when you do that, um, uh, and and you know, own the challenges when they come up. And you know, so look, you will find some of these things challenging or a bit that. But look, we can all put. KPIs and metrics against those sort of things. What's really hard though, is we always get asked this when we're talking about more brand and strategy and some of the sort of those bolder creative elements of what we do, like a rebrand, is that you can't actually measure the impact of them. Even years later, you can can definitely measure whether the business has succeeded, but can you always attribute it perfectly back to that brand decision? But what you can do in this particularly applicable, I guess, to to value selling is you can all say you can all point to the absolute category leaders and say they did not stand still and they took decisions that were bold and creative that were informed by insight as much as possible, but um, frankly, that those sort of decisions are from people who understand whether it be the market, good taste, the human side of what it is, but they're really bold decisions you can't measure and to that to paraphrase or ruin the henry ford quote you know if you ask your customers what they want they'll build a faster horse um and so yes we can put in brand sentiment trackers and social listening tools but but really it's um the best category leading brands have have leadership who are prepared to take creative risks be that in a new product or how they're positioned or how they talk to the market at the top of the funnel and you can't measure it. And we don't pretend that we can measure every aspect of that as well. We just point to other brilliant firms who've done the same and and really front up to that question, actually, by by putting it back on them and saying, you know, have you got the guts to be like these people who are, and the, and the ones who do will, t- will take risks.
1: And that's also back to that kind of timeless brand creation, is that there are brands that we know that are timeless brands because they have been courageous and bold. Uh, and they've done things differently, but they've stuck to a basic set of almost like principles, it seems like. Um, And I think, and this is probably a message for anyone out there that's a buyer, is there is a danger as a buyer, I found, when I'm negotiating SLAs and KPIs, it can be a bit of a kind of measure yourself to the bottom of the barrel problem, whereby I put in so much emphasis on the measurement, the monthly measurement, to make sure that you're delivering what we are paying for, that it kills the creativity, and yeah, I hear I th-
0: agencies say this a lot. It's true, isn't it? I think you know it's it's almost converting yourself to the bottom, and perhaps you could you could you could you could layer that accusation on private equity, for example. You know they they're very good at buying great brands, and then you know there, there is a cliche, and it's not true in every case, but then ruthlessly optimizing them to the point where they're extremely cash generative for you know, by year five and then they're sold on and the person who's bought it, you know, has found that it's it's doesn't have an employee culture anymore of note. There's sort of like the creativity and the brand essence that keep that spirit of innovation going um, uh, isn't there and that that's a problem. I, I think, you know, there's one big corporate exception to, to this thing, which is Amazon somehow manages to grow to be an astonishingly large behemoth and yet keeps the spirit of innovation within it with that, that whole kind of two- 2 pizza rule read about it it's fascinating about how they keep small teams and um you know they're prepared to to innovate and fail um and take risks but um yeah i do agree with that i think you have to balance it and it's a it's a dangerous thing just to get caught into this everno cycle of short term year on year um optimization and and it's a problem of being listed i guess because obviously the market's so hungry for for short term results
1: and something about the negotiation dynamic as well that that kind of brings out for me is I think a lot of a lot of sellers get trapped in this kind of mindset of when they meet procurement, it's a bit like meeting the police. You have to kind of do what we say in the way that we say it, and it's not really a balanced partnership. And my advice always is, is that if you see something that looks wrong or it's heading in the wrong direction, but you don't understand the motivations of someone that sat behind the demands they're making, just ask. Just stop yeah. the negotiation and say, Can I just understand what's going on? You know, this is—it looks, it feels like a race to the bottom. Neither of us want that. We're trying to create something much bigger than that. Yes, we've got to measure things, but there needs to be a balance here. What's motivating you to drive us down this particular path? And just stopping the conversation, having an open, honest dialogue. Yeah, I think that's so important—is
0: to remember there's a human on the opposite side of the procurement process. I think because probably, you know, if you read about supermarket procurement of supplies over the years you know it gives procurement a very bad name but even they I think they're having to sort of roll back from the kind of um, ruthless optimization they had back in the sort of late 90s 2000s but you know the procurement department if it's um, the best businesses I find if they're really successful and sustainable they treat their supplies really really well and um, hence the procurement function within that business will be a great reflection of that business and coming back to the qualification point if you're doing your marketing uh, and your sort of pre-sales rights, you'll be able to find businesses like that where, frankly, um, it's a bit of a not a joy to go through procurement, but they're they're generally people you wouldn't mind having a beer with, and they're they they're they're, de- they're decent. Um, and if you come up across a procurement department that's not decent or people, it's probably a sign that you don't want
1: to be working for them. Exactly right. So Fred, I'm very conscious of your time. Um, yep. We had a we had a time contract. We're running towards the end of that. So <laughs> um, just. Um, in summary, two or three big learnings about negotiations over your kind of last decade that you'd like to share. So what are the kind of two or three big things on negotiations? Okay, so where would I start? So my starting point, if I was
0: ever in a really big negotiation or procurement and I needed a question answered, would be, I'd pick up the phone to the man, the myth, the legend that is Mike Lander. <laughs> That's my first one. Ask for some advice from people who've been there and done it. Um, Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Fred. So, so that would be recommendation number one. <laughs> um, the second is this is maybe just just us and or maybe just my kind of bias but big big procurement isn't necessarily bad. Blair ends can um, if it'd be amazing if he did come back to you on that one but um I think I there, is, there, there are times when it's not actually so bad a big formal procurement because I think we're going to win it and we're going to be marked on the right criteria. Um, that said, it, it, there's lots of good ways to get around procurement still. Um, the third one, I, I, this is something, I was, when we talked about this the other day, which I think is interesting, is that the one thing that never gets talked about almost in schools or by your parents or in the context of this conversation is that it's never a bad thing to try and make the other side like you and to be nice to them. Um, yeah. You know, human connection is still a thread that runs through this whole process and not enough emphasis is put on that. You can get a lot of things done by just like making the effort to understand the person on the other side. Um, uh, and like, I mean, it doesn't mean like drinks and dinners that are really false. It just, just anyway, that's inappropriate in most cases. Um, it just actually just like be pleasant. Um, and you get by in life a bit, I think.
1: Absolutely right. And in fact, um, Henry Price uh, from LinkedIn, who I talked to on episode one, he talked exactly about that. He was saying that, look, you know, there's a person there, there's a longer term relationship that you're trying to build, and you can be open, friendly, uh, engaging with someone while still being tough on the topic. It doesn't mean that you're weak because you're listening and you're empathizing and you're accepting some things and challenging others. It's the opposite of weakness, it's strength. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I definitely endorse that. And that's becoming a bit of a theme actually through the series is in negotiation, there's this, there's a matrix, there's always a matrix, Fred, Uh, Mm. but this one's about kind of emphasis on relationship building and emphasis on the content of what you're negotiating about. And the best negotiations are where both are important. And that's where the best outcomes come for the business on both sides. You focus on the relationship and the content and context of what you're negotiating. Fred, it's been amazing. i thoroughly enjoyed it, as always. Uh, So uh, where can people find out more about you? So um, we are at
0: www.matterofform.com and the Matter of Form is our social handles as well. Um, and yes, it'd be a joy if we've met anyone through this podcast. I'd like to say thank you, Mike, and um, thanks for today. You make a notionally dry subject, as ever, (laughs) really interesting and fun. That's your USP, Mike.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'll definitely take that. Fred Moore, it's been a complete and utter pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.